This may sound strange, but to crime scene investigators, there's something peaceful about working with the dead. No matter how a victim's life ended, they all have a story to tell. That is, if somebody is willing to listen. For more than 30 years, Howie Ryan has been that guy. Most of that time as a state police crime scene investigator. Today, he's a crime scene reconstruction consultant and expert witness and teacher of state-of-the-art forensic techniques to law enforcement agencies worldwide. He has worked scenes you wouldn't want to experience in your worst nightmare. This podcast series will pull back the sheet on what really happens in the world of forensic investigations. It's not like what you see on TV. So hold on tight as we take a walkthrough of some gruesome crime scenes and controversial cases, many of which are too brutal for most people to imagine, and sometimes even for the experts. Join Howard Ryan and his guest experts from around the world for a no-nonsense ringside seat as they take you under the yellow tape. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Under the Yellow Tape. I'm Howie Ryan, your host. Today, what I want to do is talk to you a little bit about some of the technology, one specific area of technology and that is helping law enforcement, certainly nationwide and even worldwide. One of the really kind of cool things about being in the world of investigations is to watch technology unfold. And as it unfolds, you understand that most of this technology was really not designed for law enforcement specifically. As with just about everything else that we use in law enforcement, the, the invention of whatever technology we're using is driven by a profit margin from another sector, another business sector, another corporate America aspect. And we will generally just try to use it to our advantage however we can. And in this particular episode, I want to talk about DNA testing, specifically genealogy, open source, direct to customer DNA testing for your genealogy, your ancestry, and things like that. So we're going to go through a little bit of that technology, what it means, because you're going to he you're hearing about it a lot on the media right now, and a lot of you are like, you know something about it. Most of you probably have submitted some sort of test, um, but don't really know how it's being used in law enforcement and the benefits of cold case investigations and solving cold cases and unidentified remains and things of that nature. So I think it's important that we uh, touch on it a little bit. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to reference this technology to a specific case and how that helped them solve two 30-year-old murders. So a lot of people out there hear or have been given as gifts, either they purchase on their own or they're given gifts of a DNA test, an ancestry test. Now, there are a significant amount of companies out there that are doing it now. I'll give you an example. 23andMe is one that's a very popular one. Ancestry.com, Family Tree, MyHeritage, uh, Living DNA, and there are others. And the gist of it from a user standpoint is you order this kit or you purchase this kit. You will administer the test on yourself. Basically, it is, for the most part, a swabbing or a buckle swab, we call it, of the skin cells within inside your mouth, or you can spit into one of their sample uh, collection devices, and you send it off. And they then will come back to you, and they'll tell you what your ancestry is, where you come from, where your people come from, what is your background, what is your nationality. The fascinating thing about it on its face value is people are finding out they have lineage or ancestry in places they never knew. They thought, oh, I'm 100% Italian, or I'm 100% German, or whatever. And they find out they're Norwegian, and some of them are finding out they have Middle Eastern descent, or and some of it's pretty shocking. 
The other thing that this does is it can potentially link you to other relatives around the world. If those people have themselves entered into the same similar type of search, as you can tell, that's that's a pretty fascinating thing. <laughs> For some people, it's causing problems because they're finding out they had family they didn't know they had. It's it's super technical, but they make it very easy for the user. And the results that you get back are very uh, easily read and understood. So it's, it's really kind of a fantastic business model when you think about it because they make it uh, so simple for the user, but the results that you're getting are so fascinating about your own life. It's not about studying history. It's about studying your history and where your family came from and originated and who you may be related to. And it's, as you can imagine, it's a pretty fascinating setup. I'm going to get into a little bit of, you know, I, I listed those companies, 23andMe and all those. Now you may think, well, do they, if I go on 23andMe, what if I have relatives that went into another company, another kit and submitted through a different uh, uh, testing company? Well, we're going to get into how they kind of match them up. Sometimes some of it's a shared database. Some of it is another third party company, which I'll, I'll try to explain on how they do it. But when you think about what it really is, it is a genealogical DNA test. And it's used in basically genetic genealogy that looks at specific locations of a person's genome. And what that is, is your DNA breakdown. It's everything in your cells that identify you as an individual. And they do it in order to find or verify any genealogical relationships from your family going back. Um, they use different algorithms and, and ways to do it and estimates for uh, each individual, and they vary. One of the questions people have is, how accurate is it? Well, it's pretty accurate. I mean, they're gonna, we're going to talk a little bit about how they do it, how it works. But in the end, what we're going to do is talk about how it really specifically is used by law enforcement and why they use it and how they are benefiting from it. We're also going to touch on how there are groups out there that don't want law enforcement using it and how the federal government has, has implemented some rules on their own uh, agents from federal agencies on how they can and cannot use it. Because I, I don't, um, I'm not a huge, you know, big government person. I, I, as a matter of fact, I prefer smaller government. So that whole idea of big brother watching is always something that I, I get concerned about. Some people quite honestly don't care. And uh, I get that too, but uh, I do. I, I'm not sure that they should be watching everything, but we're going to talk about how they get into this and, and the legal parameters too, how they do it. Now, as you go through these, these tests, you're going, you, you'd be amazed when you see a result. I saw somebody's results and I was pretty shocked at how far back it went in layers of relatives and cousins, second, third, fourth cousins and things like that. And each of the matches, when they come back with matches, they typically show an estimated degree of relatedness, how close you are, how close a family match is, first and second cousin, third and fourth. They usually go out to about sixth or further. How much that inherit, DNA is inherited, it changes. And you got to remember there's this thing called recombination and those, those layers get thinner and thinner the further out you get. In the ancestral social aspect of this, you're not looking for identical matches. This is not like a DNA identification for a criminal case in court. We're showing you layers of people out there you may or may not be related to, and it's up to you to reach out or not, or them to reach out to you or not, to maybe reconnect. So it's not, this is not a, we don't need it as definitive for this as we do in a criminal case, but the technology they're using here is virtually, you know, it's similar in some of which is the same, and it, it is extremely accurate. There's three main different types of tests that you're going to hear them talk about when they do this. 
and we'll get into those as well. You'll, you've probably heard of the term mitochondrial DNA or Y-DNA or Y-S-T-R. They are, they are there. They, these companies use mostly what's called an autosomal test, and it's, it's more all-inclusive, which I'll explain. And the mitochondrial and the y, Y-DNA, DNA, they're more objective, but they give considerably fewer DNA matches. So from a business standpoint, these companies want to give you as much information as possible a little what they call return on investment. You're going you're gonna to take the time, you're giving them your DNA, you're entrusting them to find matches for you. They want to give you something to look at. What in criminal court, we want to tell a jury of 12 people is that's the guy or that's the girl and nobody else. So it's, it's a, little bit, a little bit different when it comes to that. The history of it is pretty simple, actually. The first companies to do this, uh, they started right back around you know, Y2K, 2000, 1999-ish area. Criminal, criminal laboratories were doing it before that. If you remember dating back, you know, probably the one that most of you remember is the O.J. Simpson trial, um, where they started to talk about DNA. It was where it was kind of thrust into everybody's mind from a criminal court standpoint. But as far as this type of thing, it was around 99, 2000-ish, where it began. There was a company called Gene Tree. Uh, they sold out to another and another, and it, it ended up being purchased by Ancestry.com in 2012. Family Tree in 2000 was the first company to dedicated to direct-to-customer testing. So they offered uh, an 11, mark in, 11 marker uh, YSTR tests and a mitochondrial DNA test. That's when they first started. Now, in 2007, 23andMe was the first company to offer a saliva-based direct-to-customer. That means they can do, do the swabbings or using saliva spit or anything like that. Because they were also the first ones to implement the use of autosomal DNA ancestry, which they all would eventually come to use. And that became important because of the nature of the tests. As, they, as these companies grew, in 2019, it was estimated a large genealogical testing company had about 26 million DNA profiles. Now, there's 330-some-odd million people in this country. You might say, 26 million is not that much. It's a lot, actually. What they end up doing is they end up passing some of their results onto another database, another company called GED Match. GED Match will, will uh, collect from multiple agencies and create another search engine that can be used. In other words, instead of having to, well, we're going to search 23andMe, and then we're going to search Ancestry and Family Tree, they're all in this other database. I like it because it's layers, and layers mean objective. Layering means objective, especially in the world of criminal investigation, how we're finding certain things. The objectivity is, is in this, especially in this day and age, is so important. So today what they do is very simple, right? A cheek scraping or an oral swab, also known as a buckle swab, spit cups or something like that. You send it in and they do the rest. They give you a, some genetic information in return about you. And everybody wants to know. So their curiosity is what feeds this business. It's what's driving this business. And it's really a brilliant business model, actually. So how do they do it? Well, in the world of DNA, especially in this, there are basically three major types in the world of genealogy, DNA tests, autosomal, Y DNA, and mitochondrial DNA. So let's go through the three so you kind of have a little bit of an understanding of why what they're doing is probably the best and why they're all doing it now. So why DNA, or they sometimes do YST, it was called YSTR in the world of criminal laboratories. It looks at the Y chromosome, which is passed down from a father to a son. The Y DNA test can only be taken by males to explore their direct 
paternal line. So it's a male-specific, father-to-son, that lineage. And just right there, you can see how it limits so many other people. I mean, it limits to a, a certain group of people and alienates pretty much the whole female side. So there's that. The mitochondrial test looks at mitochondria. And that's from mother to child, not just a daughter, mother to child. So it can be taken by both males and females, but it explores the maternal line. So as we trace back in one, we're going back on a paternal line, father, and the other one, we're going strictly back on a maternal line, mother. And in criminal court, that's not going to hold enough water. doesn't mean it can't be used from the standpoint of probable cause to obtain search warrants but it's not a unique and specific identifier. So what these companies do is they do what's called autosomal DNA testing. And what that does, it looks at chromosome pairs. And the pairs, and we know, we know the number is 23, right? But they do pairs one through 22. And the X part of the 23rd chromosome. So it's pairs one through 22 pairs and the X part of the 23rd. The autosomes, they're inherited from both of your parents and your recent ancestors. And it follows a, speci a specific inheritance pattern. So females, XX, inherit the X chromosome from each of their parents, while males, the XY, inherit an X chromosome from their mother and a Y from their father. And this is the one that determines the sex of the offspring. And that's why this becomes the preferred method of testing. In these, uh, the technology has advanced so much that they can do it, and they can do it at a, a reasonable cost. You know, there's a cost to take these tests, obviously, but the autosomal is mother and father. So it opens up that world of, of everybody that's out there who we may be able to tap into to look for the identifiers. And how do they do that? Well, once they look at how the genetic markers that are coming in, they, they have to put a munitive measurement. And, you'll, and I'm, the reason I'm going into this is because as uh, investigators, and remember, this, the whole point of this podcast episode is talking about what this technology is, but relating it to the law enforcement use. When they do their affidavits and they're going to further their investigation, if they do get a result from one of these direct-to-consumer DNA testing sites, they have to give a little information. And there's some, there's some things they need to understand. Investigators need to understand. It's not a matter of just setting up a bogus account, sticking in a name and getting a DNA result back and saying, here's our guy. It is, it is a little bit, <laughs> there is some of that there, but there's more to it. When they go before the courts, they have to do some exp explaining, as they should, right? So our autosomal DNA is passed from a parent to child, our parents' genetic profiles combined together and create our own un unique. So your father has a unique, your mother has a unique, they combine, it's called recombination, creating your unique genetic makeup. And that is called recombination. As each segment of that gets passed down, they generally break up and become smaller, right? There's only so much of it. And as it keeps going, it starts to get smaller and smaller and smaller. Um, and what they do is they create a, a unit of measurement. And the unit of measurement is called a centimorgan. So a lot of times when they are going before a court, some of the things they are going to have to disclose is how much in a unit of measurement are we convinced that somebody is a suspect or a person of interest based on a direct-to-consumer DNA test before we take this any further. Because what the law enforcement are going to do is they're going to use the results from this to narrow down a search. All it is is a search engine for them. 
And I say all it is is a search engine. It's a fantastic search engine. And there's a couple of reasons why from a legal standpoint. One, if you become a suspect, you were found out through science. But first you were found out by somebody willing and consensual to give a sample to put it in there. So you could be a murderer and you never gave this sample, but one of your relatives did. And through that, they may link it down to a family tree. Well, as you can imagine, searching 330 million people being pared down, and I say 330 million people, our population in this country, being pared down to a family of 30 in one test, that's a quantum leap forward. That's, that's years. That's cold cases no longer being cold. The technology is magnificent. It's incredibly powerful. But as, it, as with anything like that, you have to harness it and you have to I hate to say regulated, but you have to regulate it. There has to be permissions. The beautiful thing about this is most of the permissions are already given by the original person submitting the sample. So as you go before, they, they look at these unit of measurements and they talk about centimorgans. They are, they are pieces of identical segments. And the key is identical. This is the identifiers. And once they are identified, they're measured in what's called centimorgans. And Single nucleotide polymorphisms. I'm not going to get into too much of the science because, first of all, I'm not all that good at it. And second of all, you probably don't want to hear it. But they're measured in tandem with, within these thresholds. And it's confusing, but this is what the scientists do. And they are able to put a number on it. And as anything else in this world, when we have to go before a court, we talk about error rates or we talk about mistakes or we talk about this. There's numbers. There's, there's numbers out there that has to, to give validity to it. The autosomal DNA, that's very important to understand, it's, it's the 22 pairs of chromosomes. They are the ones that are not involved in determining a person's sex. So when this test comes through, we're not just saying it's a male or it's a female. As a matter of fact, we're not. We're giving a line of a family and potential relatives and from that point, the investigators have to go back and do old-fashioned police work, including some other criminal laboratory tests. Now, this is where I was talking about the objectivity, the layering. This is not just one thing. We don't, we don't put the quarter in the machine and it spits out a name. We put a DNA sample in, or better yet, you put a DNA sample in, and we may put another DNA sample in from a crime scene, and we just find out that that person's related to you. Now, that person could be a person of interest. It may not be a suspect. It may not be our person. It just may be somebody. It could be a number of different reasons why we have that name and why that name has surfaced. And those are very important for us because it narrows down what is otherwise massive searches and what otherwise turns into very cold cases. And that's really something that we all as a society should try to avoid, really just try to avoid. So as we go through this and this autosomal DNA and the, the recombination happens, new offspring receive one set of chromosomes from each parent. They are inherited exactly equally from both parents and roughly equally from grandparents, they say, uh, going out to about th three generations. Therefore, the number of the markers that they use as SNPs or single nucleotide polymorphisms, they're inherited from a specific ancestor. They decrease about half with each successive generation. So an individual receives half their markers from each parent, about a quarter of them from each grandparent, about an eighth from great-grandparents. But that line goes out. And if you're talking about cases, you can get out to great-grandparent timeframes. That's a window we like. That's a window that's usable. 
I'm not, I'm not, I don't need to go back to the 1700s. I don't even need to go back to the 1930s, but I might be able to go back to the forties and fifties because even though we weren't collecting DNA back then, some of these people, elderly folks as well, are submitting DNA samples because they're curious about their ancestry and what they're doing sometimes unbeknownst to them. And I'll talk about their opting in to this program. They're helping law enforcement solve cases. Now we're not just solving murders. They are solving rapes, sexual assaults. They're also identifying human remains that have been unidentified for many, many years. So when you look at this from the standpoint of the greater good for society, there's a lot of, there's a lot of positives. There's just flat out a lot of positives. There is room and a place for a lot of negatives. It's not automatic negatives. The negatives come from people and the actions of people. That's why we have to be responsible in the use of this technology. It's like when you talk about the gun violence in the country, everybody talks about gun violence. I don't really even hear them talking about human violence. It's the responsibility of people. People are responsible for actions. So law enforcement has to be professional and responsible in the use of this technology. And so far they've been that way. As I'm not going to dive hard into the, uh, the science, individual science background of everything, because the science, you could go such a deep dive on this, you could turn this into a massive science podcast and bring in DNA experts and, and throw out technology that really only other DNA experts or scientists are going to understand. So we're not going to go there. I, I just want to kind of give you the background of that and how that works and why it's so effective. I love the fact that the, the technology is so cool, but I really love the fact that there's a layer to it, multiple layers. And those multiple layers provide objectivity. Objectivity is the best defense for any type of investigative bias. Remember that. So now you have a test done. Boom, comes back. 23andMe, Ancestry, whoever it may be. They did you a great service. You're looking at your ancestry, blah, 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 blah. Someday you may get contacted. You never know by law enforcement. Say, hey, your name popped up in a DNA search. We have no reason to believe you're involved in any type of nefarious activity or criminal activity. However, do you have any relatives in such and such a city? And you might say, well, yeah, I have a cousin so-and-so. Well, that cousin is not in the database. So nothing really led them to that cousin, but you. They, the, the, the science led them to you. You're a direct relation somehow or another. And this is how this works. And this is where it becomes controversial because some people get a little wigged out by the fact that now the long arm of the law just got a whole lot longer. I mean, a lot longer. And you might say, well, how did you find it? And there may be different ways that it happens. One of them is that these, some of these agencies forward their data, their DNA database information over to another third party. GED match is one example. And what they are is they're an online service to compare autosomal DNA files from different testing companies. They gained significant uh, media attention back in, uh, in 2018. They were used by law enforcement to identify a suspect in the Golden State Killer in California. This case was you know, ongoing for years, and um, it was used to find them. They used it, narrowed it down, and um, they identified the suspect blew that case wide open. That was one of the first times really that a genealogy case got that much attention. It wasn't the first time it was used, but it was the first time it got that much attention. So users of GED Match, they upload their autosomal DNA test data 
from commercial DNA companies, and they do it to identify potential relatives. So their original curiosity that brought them to purchase a test from one of these other DNA companies and take the buccal swab and submit it, that same curiosity now, they may individually want to upload their... In other words, they don't get what they think they need from an individual company. So I did Ancestry, I did 23andMe, I did Family Tree, and I'm, I'm not, I don't really see that many. I thought there was going to be more. Well, the option two now, you submit it to GED Match. That now goes in because you get your DNA profile and your files back, your downloadable file. That now can be uploaded to GED Match. What they do is they search now a cross-section of multiple companies. You just now entered into a much larger database covering a cross-section of different DNA testing companies. They, you know, an interesting thing is sometimes the names of these things are, are not real, they're aliases, but they have to have an email address to attach to it. Otherwise, they won't let you do it. So there is a way to find whether you have, you know, ISPs or you can go back and, and, and search them that way. Some of them are just, they put it in with their name. They just, they don't care. Um, I mean, I'm putting in because I want to know. So I'm, maybe somebody will find, I, I'm looking for somebody. Maybe I want somebody to find me. It's that kind of thing. So you have now that next phase. Again, another layer. So when you have a GD, GED match, there's theoretically, I mean, and realistically, I should say, there's already been another DNA test from another company that was uploaded to this. So that's just another layer. So when they say, well, the police were biased in their investigation, they focused on this guy. And why did they focus on this guy? Well, they focused on this guy because the technology brought them there. And it's not just one. Sometimes it's multiple layers of advanced technology that brought us to this individual. And from that point, we go into our old-fashioned police work and we grind it out. But the technology is the thing, is the yellow brick road. It brought us where we needed to be. And it is, again, people's curiosity that probably allowed or had them search for their own knowledge. And, you know, it, it turns into something a little different. But people get pissed, right? They get pissed off because they're like, you know, this is a little screwed up. People, something that's really cool for people and their ancestry thing, you know, we're looking at our family tree, we're doing our little scrapbooking thing and figuring shit out. Next thing you know, I got the cops knocking on my door saying my cousin Johnny killed somebody. You know, that may be the case, folks. That may really happen. Be thankful they're not coming for you. They just may come to ask you questions. So it is what it is. Now, uh, to safeguard some of this, there have been a couple of things. Back in September of 19, uh, DOJ, the U.S. Department of Justice, they had some guidelines put out. Any, uh, and it was really for federal investigators only and any federally funded investigation, saying they could use gene, genetic genealogy to track down suspects in serious crimes. Now, I don't have their SOPs or their policy manual in front of me. Um, I'm doing this on open source, but, you know, that I get it. It's a ser serious crimes. The, probably for a couple of reasons. One, the exigency of serious crimes is something different, okay? If we have somebody out there that's killing people, we want to get after them. So don't bog down the system with kind of lesser crimes because the database can get bogged down. We have too many people submitting. It slows everything down, and we want to expedite this, and we want it to make it work pretty efficiently. This episode of Under the Yellow Tape is brought to you by Sheepdog Java Coffee Company. The sheepdogs in everyday life are your first responders. On the job 24-7, keeping watch while your family lives the American dream. These professionals work tirelessly day in and day out to keep your world safe, healthy, and whole. It's really not a job, it's a calling. So join the pack 
Try Sheepdog Java today in support of your first responders and enjoy each cup with peace of mind. For more information, check us out at sheepdogjava.com. One of the problems, one of the real hurdles, high hurdles in law enforcement is things that slow it down. Now, some of those things that slow it down absolutely have to be in play. People's constitutional and civil rights have to be maintained and protected. But when you say, well, exhaust yourself first and then use this other stuff, it's like saying, hey, this stuff is great. It really works. It works so well that we have a policy on it. But I'd like you to break your balls and do everything else first before you actually go to the shit that really works really well. How federal is that? <laughs> we used to say that. How federal is that? It's typical federal court stuff. If I'm an investigator and I'm working on a case, I'm not exhausting anything. I mean, I'll do that stuff, but simultaneously, because I'm going to be fast and efficient, I am going to, I am going to start to look to access uh, public, you know, these, these open source kind of uh, um, direct-to-consumer DNA databases. They're gold. Now, here's the thing. You say, yeah, but what if the feds bosses say they can't? Okay, let me tell you how that works, folks. What I do then, if I'm a federal agent and I'm working a case on a murder, first of all, you got to remember something. Feds don't investigate murders really almost 100% of the time. It's somebody else's case. Unless, of course, it's on, on federal property and a federal building or on an Indian reservation. They, they don't do this. You know, if there's a murder in Chicago, Chicago PD is investigating. Now, the FBI may get involved. And if you know anything about them, they always try to, right? Cops out there are laughing when I say this because I know what I mean. So if I'm a Fed and I have a case, I'll have another law enforcement partner, meaning my agency, my local, one of my local agencies. If I'm that agent and I need this done, I'm going to say to them, hey, can you do this? Can you set it up? Can you make the application and do it? Of course they're going to do it. If the feds hamper their own people, there's always another way. And it's a legal way, by the way. It's just going to piss off the DOJ. But who cares? Because they make idiotic things like exhaust yourself first rules. So there's a way. Where there's a will, there's a way. There's a reason law enforcement found this technology, because there's a will and there's a way. So that's how that works. So keep in mind, though, these guidelines uh, apply only to federal investigators at the time and federally funded investigations. They do not apply to state or local enforcement, law enforcement agencies. And that's is uh, that's kind of how it's going to get done. Some agency is going to allow it and they're going to go do it. And you even have court ordered requests, warrants being given for this. Um, I think in Florida they did it. Uh, yeah, November 19, a Florida judge approved the police request for a warrant to search the database of GED match. So even if GED said no, a court can 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 give a warrant for it if 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 it's if the circumstances are are such that it's going to help. Here's an interesting side note because everything in this country always has a racial component. Everything is racist, right? Everything. I, I say that half tongue-in-cheek joking and half dead serious. We have, we have people, we have, and it's mostly politicians, let's face it, folks. They're like the ruination of mankind. Everything is a racist component because it's, they can, if they can turn it into, into voting currency, they'll use it. They're shameless. So everything's racist. But listen to this statistic. White people are technically overrepresented on GED Match and are believed to be under represented 
in CODIS, which is the FBI's database, which is run and managed by the FBI. All the submitting agencies are law enforcement from around the country. Submit criminal DNA samples to CODIS, Combined DNA Index System. That is criminal only. That is not an open source. That is not genealogy. That is a criminal database, which has been in play for a while. So white people are underrepresented. I like how they say underrepresented in CODIS. Um, <clears throat> and those samples are pulled from crime scenes, arrestees, criminal suspects. Thus, GED may match may especially be especially effective in facilitating the arrests of white people who might otherwise have eluded law enforcement. Okay, folks, I'm a white dude. I applaud that. You know what? If it represents, and we can get more white people that have eluded law enforcement, I'm good with it. I'm good. I don't really look at it as a racist. I look at it and go, hey, man, whatever. I think it's fantastic. Whatever we got to do. Criminals are criminal. I don't care what color they are. And neither does neither do most people in this line of work. It is what it is. You say, how effective is it? Like, is it, you know, the end justify the means type thing? Or, I mean, we could talk all day about the legal thresholds and we have civil libertarians that are losing their minds over it. They said the use of websites such as GED match by law enforcement raises legal and privacy concerns. Well, they don't, folks, because you're submitting it. You say, what about the privacy of the bad guy? Yeah, I don't really give a shit about him. If your cousin submitted a DNA thing and he come back and you killed somebody and we found you through it, tough shit. It's called technology. It's called the advancement of, of technology and human race figuring shit out. Okay. We can't protect predators. So a professor out of the San Francisco State University, there's a shocker, right? San Francisco, the failed state where they let everybody free, noted that whereas California police, listen to this, California police had to get a judge's permission to search CODIS, a judge. You needed a judge's permission to search CODIS. That is not the way it is everywhere else, folks. We may have a prosecuting attorney involved and we make a submission based on the case. We don't have to get warrants for it. So it's just another layer of protecting the bad people and probably why that state is falling through its ass. Some people, uh, a guy named Charles Sidner III, a Maryland delegate, he sought a bill to prohibit law enforcement from using DNA databases for crime solving. I just want to ask him why. For crime solving. We're not, we're not doing anything else. We're just doing it for crime solving. Why? Why is this, why is this an issue? Another state representative, Utah of all places, introduced a similar bill that would ban genetic genealogy searches by police in all. Well, this is where it gets to the be where they're going to lose. Because in, in, in 19, some of these other companies, including GED Match, began requiring people who had uploaded their DNA to its site to what they call opt-in to allow law enforcement agencies to access their information. So we're bringing it right back to the consumer. The permissions are being given. Hey, you want, we're going to do your genealogy. We're going to give you your ancestry. We're going to tell you where your, your, you know, your great-grandfather was from and all this. We're going to tell you whether you're Irish or, Ca or German or Italian or whatever you might be. But law enforcement uses this. So would you like to give them permission to use it? And it's funny because in May of 20, about 260,000 GED match users opted in. There is hope. People get it. They opted in to allowing it to happen. So now that we've kind of covered a little bit of the genealogy and, some, and, and hopefully answered some questions that people had or that or satisfied some of their curiosity about what it really means. Hopefully some of you have heard of it, maybe didn't know that much about it, or some of you never heard about it. I know a little bit about it. So what I'd like to do now is let's kind of take this thing from what we just talked about and give you an actual case study, uh, one that is actively going right now. 
and kind of show you how this worked and how law enforcement used it. And some of it is what I just explained, but I think it's a pretty, it's always interesting to apply some of that to a real, real world example. We had two women who had been murdered in 1992 and 1993, one in Texas and the other in California. Both of these murders had gone cold. The investigations had gone cold. And what ended up happening is during those murder investigations many, many years ago, the investigators during the course of their crime scene investigation had collected DNA from the scene, from the victims at the autopsy, and they had those DNA samples. And through the years, they held on to them and technology got better and better. And this is one of these perfect examples of how the technology improving has really jump-started some of these cold cases. So in this particular case, a gentleman by the name of Douglas Thomas, a 67-year-old man, he was arrested this past, this year, with a $2 million bond and a murder charge was levied against him. He is now being charged with capital murder, which I'll explain. He is charged in the April 1992 death of Shenandoah Denise Hayes, and that is a filing in uh, Titus County, Texas. He is also charged with the March 1993 murder of Sherry Herrera in Riverside County, California. Now, both of these women were described in the affidavit as, as engaged in prostitution in the business of the sex trades. Mr. Thomas was an over-the-road truck driver for 30-plus years. He drove all around the country, and he was in different places. And in this particular case, DNA tests had been done, and he eventually was linked to this case, but I'd like to kind of fill you in how it happened and why, why there's two sides to this, why this new technology is so important, but also why the old-fashioned police work will never be replaced. As great as technology can become, this, the, 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 the quality of the investigator, the efforts of the investigator, and the perseverance, the heart, of the people chasing down the bad people will never be replaced. So Hayes's body was found near a rest area along I-30 near Mount Pleasant in Titus County, Texas. During the investigation show, she had been strangled, quote, with a device made of wire and cord in a manner to control the victim. She was found partly, partially clothed with evidence of sexual assault. Swabs were taken from her body and in 2004, they were uploaded into the DNA database, into CODIS. Now, that was done by Texas Ranger Danny Briley. He's, he's handling the investigation on the side uh, for the state of Texas. He is on the Texas Rangers Cold Case Squad, and he is handling it from the, the aspect of the murder in Texas. Mike Thompson, he's an investigator with, he was an investigator with the Riverside County District Attorney's Office and a former member of the Riverside County Sheriff's Department, cold case unit. They worked together on this case. In California, 30-year-old Herrera, her body was found in March of 93 in a remote desert area along I-10, Interstate 10 in California. Now, the affidavit in that says she was sexually assaulted and strangled with a belt. Um in, in Tolera, Tulare County, California. Now, the significance of what I just read to you, the method used by the killer was similar, very similar, almost identical, strangulation and sexual assault. 
that's something as far as the old fashioned police work aspect of this becomes very important later on. And it's going to be. This is not an adjudicated case yet. This isn't just in the media. They have enough information back then, you know, about seeing them dropped off near truck stops and this and that. Thompson, out of Riverside, California, he uploaded the DNA profile from the murder scene in 2002 into CODIS. Now, interesting, 2002. Five years later, 2007, CODIS hit. They got a hit. And in law enforcement, we talk about a hit. It's a match. Interesting, though. It's not a match to an individual. It's a case-to-case match. Meaning CODIS was able to tell you, look, I have a DNA profile from a case in Riverside, California, and one in in the Waco, Texas area, or um, Titus County, Texas area, that are the same people. We don't, you know, CODIS is objective. It's just a database. It's spitting out data. Again, layering, data. Layers upon layers of objective information add up to validity and credibility. So CODIS spits out this information saying, we don't know anything else, but we know this. We have the same person at two different crime scenes in two different years. And they even quote in the affidavit, in other words, DNA from a single person was located at both crime scenes. It's said in the affidavit. Um, they had re, reintroduced their case. Um, they had a, uh, an SNP, like I told you before, a single nucleotide, uh, single nucleotide polymorphism file the lab had put together. And these are the ones that are needed to upload into genealogical databases. Thompson in California contacted the direct-to-consumer genealogical company. They don't mention which one it is, but that provides DNA kits to the general public. They had built a family tree based on those results. And it's kind of interesting because everything I just explained in that whole family tree or the family DNA, the, the um, direct-to-consumer DNA, worked right here, worked to a T. So Thompson was able to build a family tree and found there were six descendants or relatives of the DNA profile they have in both murders who all live in or around Waco, Texas. And they were in the right genetic range for comparison. Now, that's important because it's not, hey, we've identified somebody specifically. In other words, look, they're in the range here. They're related somehow. We don't know who it is. In other words, he's not in here, but they don't do that. This is just, this is what we have. So Briley, at Thompson's request, took a DNA sample from Thomas on April 26th, the results of which Briley said matches that of the suspected profile. Now, how this works, this is your old-fashioned police work. Ranger Briley had to go to um, the suspect here. He had to go speak to Douglas Thomas. Well, you don't just walk up and, and say, hey, you're the guy, you're a suspect, and blah, blah, blah. So what Briley had to do was investigate him. And this is where that marriage of state-of-the-art new technology and extremely competent investigators experience come into into play. They, they, they combine together and they can produce something really, um, really incredible. So Briley was able to obtain a legal sample by speaking to Thomas, getting a legal sample with his consent, which they now were able to compare. Now, you don't launch that back into CODIS because this is kind of a, a surreptitious 
obtaining of a, of a DNA sample because you're not telling them everything. You're in an interview. This is not an interrogation. I'm getting him to, com to comply, to get him to cooperate. So he does. So it doesn't go back into CODIS, but they don't need to. And this is where people need to understand the difference. Once I have, so they already had DNA samples from the crime scene in 92 and the crime scene in 93 from both victims and from the suspect. CODIS has identified the suspect as the same. It doesn't identify who it is. It just tells you it's the same. So they have all the samples they need. Now what they do is they go to the state criminal laboratory, Texas DPS criminal DNA section in their laboratory can now do a comparison from comparing Mr. Thomas's voluntary sample that he gave to Ranger Briley and comparing it to the samples found in the rape kit of Herrera, Shenda Hayes. Remember, the DNA found on the bodies or in the bodies during the rape kit of each of those come back to the same person. Now that lab compares them to this particular control sample that Briley was able to obtain from Thomas. Their results were they were the match. He was the individual identified through direct DNA comparison as the person present as far as the DNA in both crime scenes. He is now being charged with capital murder in the state of Texas. It's interesting because a capital murder has to be one or more people. But in, the, in this particular case in Texas, um, even though it wasn't one or more people in the same event, which is normally how that, that is done, it is the same manner. I think they were able to use the, the, the fact that it was the same manner of death. And they were able to basically say, okay, it's even in different states, but he is, he is a, a multiple, he's the killer of multiple people. Now, you might say to yourself at this point, wow, that's great. And it is. Don't, don't make, make no mistake about it. It is great. This is great police work by Thompson out in Riverside, California. This is great police work by Ranger Briley in Texas. They wrapped these up. The question both of those gentlemen have, I guarantee you, is how many more did this guy kill? Because there's no way in hell, as an investigator, you think you've got them all. If he had killed multiple times in one town, that may be one thing. But this guy's an over-the-road, over-the-road open-road truck driver for several decades. And I got killings in Texas and in California. You have to believe there are others. So you hope that this technology will again work its magic and he may pop up again somewhere else. These these databases relaunch and recompare and they search and they constantly search. So it's it's like a uh, it's technology that doesn't get tired. But the the beauty of it is only so good. Because when it does what it does, you still need the competent professional investigator to be able to take it to that next level. And in this particular case, you had two very dedicated individuals who never quit. So this gentleman is going to be on trial in Texas for, the, for these murders or for the murder in Texas. If he is found guilty when that case is adjudicated, California wants him to could try him on theirs. So he's going to be serving the rest of his life in a jail cell, or if he's found guilty in the state of Texas of capital murder, he could technically be given the death penalty. And if, if any of you 
are unaware, Texas actually has the death penalty, and they're not one of those states that just threaten to use it. They actually do. So this gentleman may, he may, he may face that as it is. I wanted to really touch on this today because there's a lot of talk about this. In upcoming episodes, we're going to talk more about it in different cases because I think it's a fascinating topic and I think people really want to know more about it and they want to learn how it is applied and how it is used successfully. I think what you're going to find in, in some of these other cases, in, especially in these cold case, case files or uh, in um, human remains, unidentified human remains, is that the technology's benefits far outweigh the possibility of misuse it is regulated. It is watched. There is oversight. If there is mu- misuse, it'll be dealt with. Human beings are human beings. They, they misuse things sometimes, and uh, we have to hope that doesn't happen. But you never really want this to go away. Now that you have it, and we are solving, some of these are, are, are solving up to um, one cold case per week in, in certain time frames. That's, that's, that's unheard of. So uh, I would encourage people to be optimistic about this, support it, understand that the, the benefit of it is, is really tremendous from, from a societal standpoint and, and a law enforcement standpoint. It's not technology that was made for us, but it's certainly something that we use and it's, um, it's something that um, is going to give a lot of people some closure. So uh, upcoming, uh, we're going to do a, a podcast on geofence warrants and, and geofence and, and the use of electronics and what it actually means and how it works and how beneficial it is. And the public, uh, you know, there's a faction of, of law enforcement that says, we don't want the public to know. And I understand that. But there's also a faction of law enforcement that wants people to know because we need them, to, we need them, law enforcement needs them to support it. They need to understand the value of it and what it's doing. It's similar to this in a technological standpoint. And it's something I think we need to embrace. So again, this is uh, just a little something to share on the DNA side that you're hearing more and more about. And hopefully you got a little something out of it. Thanks for listening and we'll talk soon.